This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink. When things go wrong climbing, they go wrong fast and quickly, and you simply don't have time to get a knife out and cut a rope. You can deal with just about anything if you know you're going to die. Wow, powerful little introduction, that that the voice of Joe Simpson. Now, regular uh, listeners of the show may be thinking, wait a minute, Touching the Void, I've not seen it, but I've heard that mentioned somewhere. It was mentioned on this very show, and there's good reason for that, because we caught up with... The other gentleman who plays such a crucial role in this story, Simon Yates. We did, that's right. So the, the, the two went off to climb um, a hitherto unclimbed west face of a mountain called Sula Grand in the Peruvian Andes. It's about 20,850 feet in height. And if you think about it, um, Joe is, and Joe and Simon were at the time uh, very ambitious young climbers who were. Quite, um, quite dismissive of, of the sort of expedition style of climbing, the idea that you would take oxygen on a climb, that you would use a fixed rope, that you would have porters carry your stuff. They were purists. They were, the, the, if you can imagine, this was the Champions League of mountaineering. <laughs> it really was. It's only language uh, I understand. And, and this, this, was a, this was a route that had been attempted by several high-profile climbers and no one had done it. So when Joe was 25, I believe, back in 1985, Simon was even younger, he was 21. They wanted to make a name for themselves in the climbing world. They were just high octane. He said, he, Joe insisted he's not an adrenaline junkie, but he, he attached an enormous amount of meaning and value to the idea that when you commit yourself totally to a climb like this, that there is no way back. And once you commit to it, you have to do it because you cannot, t- you actually cannot turn back. And forgive that- me if I'm wrong on this little stat as well. From listening to Simon the first time around uh, from the interview that we did with him, I'm right in saying that these two men were not childhood friends. No, they, they met. Yeah, no, they, they, met, they met in the Alps doing a, a series of climbs and they'd identified this peak as, as one of the sort of the kind of iconic marquee peaks to go and have a go at. So anyway, Simon is, is the guy, as, as you all know, uh, if you've listened to this show before, who famously cut the rope on Joe. Um, and Touching the Void was essentially written an, uh, in, in the kind of aftermath of the, of the event as a, as a means to clear Simon's name, because when they got back to the UK, he was heavily criticised by the mountaineering community. Now, it was written to clear his name. It's now sold over a million copies. We mentioned it's been made into a film. It's been made into a play. And one of the things I said to Joe is, given how 99.9% of us will never be in a situation like the one he faced, why does this story resonate as powerfully as it does? There's this very common cultural mythology running in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's called the, the, the myth of the returning warrior. It's the idea that someone going somewhere really dark and coming back, returning from that place. And I think it taps into that subconsciously, you know, this notion that people will read it. And what they do is they think, God, what would I do in that situation? You know, would I be strong? Would I, would I be weak? Would I cut the rope? Would, would I keep going? There is something about the story that fascinates people. It's not just rubbernecking an accident. And that's 
exactly it because mm. we discussed it at length. You do not need to be a mountaineer. Mm. You, you do not need to be someone that is passionate about hill walking or climbing because it's a decision that you could all transport yourself there. Would you or would you not cut the rope? And we discussed it at length about the putting yourself in that situation. Of course, anyone new to this particular story, it was Simon, they, they, they had an accident, and it was Simon, yeah. after much mental torture, yeah. weighing up the pros and the cons, eventually, you've said it, Rob, he had to cut that rope on Joe. He did, to save his own life, because he was facing certain death. And we're going to get to that, because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skim past the ascent. It's, it's actually a, it's a fascinating story, this. It's well worth reading the book. But the, the ascent was by no means simple. But what happened on the way down has overshadowed it. But if you can imagine a mountain that had never been climbed before, in the Andes, they have this strange geographical um, anomaly, which is essentially these deep channels that run through the, the granite face of the mountain that harbour these unknown depths of powder snow. So if you can imagine climbing on a sheer vertical face where you do not know when you put your ice pick in if you are going to get a good purchase or not, every single ice pick, oh every Lord. single move you make on the mountain is, is kind of, it's, it's educated guesswork. And Joe was saying, you know, they, on, on, this, on the way up, there was the ever-present possibility that they were climbing into a death trap where they could not go back down and they couldn't go further up. They would be stranded on the mountain. What was the name of that game that was on our desktops? Was it Minesweep? It's a yeah. bit like that. Yeah. You're, you're looking to avoid. You're not remembering there was solitaire. And I'm sure it was Minesweep. It's a bit like mind that. Minesweep, yeah, you're You're trying right, to make yeah. sure that you yeah. hit the right... It's a really dangerous <laughs> version of Minesweep. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to bring um, but, it back to what some people listen, might recognise. It was a horrible way up. It was it was extremely technical. It was extremely difficult. Um, it took them by surprise. Joe describes the last section on the face as he says it's a few hundred feet of the most nightmarish climbing over unstable powder with no anchors at any point. They reach the summit. By 2pm on day three, they have successfully reached the summit. They climb up the west face, they get onto the north ridge and they get up to the summit. Joe says getting to the summit is always an anticlimax because you've got to get back down. <laughs> and 80% of the accidents on mountains happen not on the way up, but on the way back down. So let's, let's, uh, let's get to the pivotal moment. Picture yourself now. You're, you're 20,000 feet up a Peruvian mountain in the middle of nowhere. No one's around. It's just those two on the mountain. And listen to what happens. We started to descend and ended up bivouacking in a snow cave at about 20,000 feet. And the next day when we set off down the ridge, I, we were moving together on this ridge with a rope between us. And there was about a 40-foot ice cliff, which I decided to down climb. And some of the ice broke away and I fell about 15 feet. And uh, I landed facing into a 50-degree ice slope. So basically, my right leg was locked. It was sort of hyperextended backwards. And um, the impact drove my tibia up through my knee joint into my femur. And the tibia split in half. And I destroyed the meniscus cartilages on both sides, tore the, uh, the cruciate ligaments, damaged the pineal nerve. But I also broke the ankle and the heel of the same leg. And at this point, we were at 19,000 feet. And there's no mountain rescue there. There's, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. You've, you've seen footballers break their legs, right, yes. Chris? They need oxygen. Yeah. They, need, they are taken off on a stretcher from a football pitch. Now imagine breaking your leg 19,000 feet with minimal oxygen on a severe slope oh. in powder snow in freezing conditions up an Andean mountain. The question is, what were they going to do now? 
Simon got down to me and I actually genuinely thought he was going to leave me at that point and I, I wouldn't have blamed him at all because if you try to get a man off a small Scottish mountain in winter with a badly broken leg, you'd have a 10, 12-man mountain rescue team to do it and it's just us two. And in the end, we decided, well, look, you know, if we tie our two ropes together, we'll have a 300-foot rope with a knot in the middle and Simon will... Uh, tie to one end, I'll tie to the other. And using an abseiling device, a friction device, Simon can lower me down the mountain. And we started doing this in a terrible storm. And Simon did it from 11 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. Now, now think about Ten this, because we spoke about this as well. Cheapers. Imagine how painful that is. So you've broken your leg. There's no, there's no painkillers. There's no morphine up there. There's nothing to aid you. There's no oxygen. He's, he's got the pain of a broken leg. And he is being lowered down a mountain where every jolt, every oh. bump in the ground is is basically inflaming, is setting that leg on fire. He said it was agony. He said being lowered, he was so angry at Simon, but at the same time he was grateful. <laughs> yeah. It was this weird juxtaposition of, of hating him but loving him for doing what he was doing at the same time. But it was incredible. The plan, as Joe said there, they did it for, I think, eight hours. The plan Dang. was working. It was working. Even in a storm, Joe had been lowered by Simon almost to the base of the mountain in these little sequences. He'd feed the rope out 300 feet, Joe would get his weight off, Simon would descend, they'd repeat the process. Until, of course, disaster struck. We were about two lowers, probably about 400 feet plus from the bottom of the mountain. And there was an ice cliff sticking out, basically a carving glacier, which we couldn't see in this storm in the dark. And Simon lowered me over the edge, couldn't see me, and I fell into space. And he, he, when he stopped me, I was hanging 25 feet down, the cliff was so overhanging I couldn't even touch the side walls. I'd say the, the air temperature is about minus 20. There was a 45 mile an hour wind. So that means the wind chill is about minus 50. When you're 30 feet apart, you couldn't hear or see each other. So Simon didn't hear, hear me. And, and as I went off the edge, all my body weight came off onto him. And he was only sitting in a small hole in the snow that we'd dig out as a seat because we couldn't find any solid ice to anchor us. And uh, he managed to slowly stopped the rope. By that time, I was swinging in space and I could see 100 feet underneath me, there was this crevasse. It was covered up and I could see where it was. And Simon, desperate to get the weight off the rope, started lowering me. And after that, another 25 feet, I stopped. And the knot joining our two ropes had jammed in his friction device and we were locked into the system. And well, at that point, I, I was hypothermic. I was frostbitten. Simon was quite badly frostbitten as well. And I thought, right, well, this is it. You know, you can't climb hand over hand of the climbing rope. You know, only Sylvester Stallone can do that. <laughs> so what's the name of that? Cliff Cliff Hanger. Hanger. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite, quite fitting given this. But just, just to add a bit of, bit of context there and to explain what had happened, the, the 300 feet of rope, they tied their two ropes together, so they had 300 feet of rope. Simon clipped onto one end, Joe clipped onto the other, and if you can imagine, he lay on his belly and he was lowered facing Simon so he was facing up the mountain yeah. Simon would pay the rope out and Joe would be would slide down on on the slope on the snow so he was sliding down the yes, side okay. yes he was sliding down the mountain that's how they were doing it oh. and then when the rope extended to its full taut. amount yeah. Joe would know because he, he'd feel the pull mm. and Simon and Joe would then move his weight off the rope he'd roll to his side and that would allow Simon the able-bodied climber to descend down to Joe and then they'd do it all over again right. so they were doing this over and over again so as you hear in the dark in the storm Joe has been lowered straight over a, a, a precipice above a crevasse just imagine the fear of that where you're dangling in midair you know something's going to happen you're just waiting you're, you're dangling, waiting for something to happen. Simon hang on to me for about an hour and a half, 
and it was like being on a fishing line because he was being hit by these huge Patterson avalanches and, and incrementally he was being dragged inch by inch forward off out of his seat. Sorry, Joe, how was he not pulled off faster than that? How was he able to actually hold your weight on the end of a rope for such a long time? I have no idea. Desperation. Because he knew he was going to die if he came off and he was stamping his heels in and every time he stamped, I jerked down a bit. I knew what was going on. You know, I couldn't do anything to, to stop it. And then after about an hour and a half, I suddenly found myself free falling through the air. And I knew what well, I thought Simon had come off. And I fell about 75 feet. And I hit the roof of this crevasse, which is a big, thick, powder snow roof, maybe 12, 15 feet deep. And it almost stopped me. And then it broke through and I fell another 70 feet, something, 60, 70 feet into the crevasse and smashed into something quite hard in the darkness. Just think of that for a second. You are dangling off. You know, you are an experienced mountaineer. You know above you, Simon Yates, as you heard there, is digging his heels in. You know the inevitable. Mm. You know what's coming. You're just waiting. You know he is not getting Herculean strength to pull you up. You wait an hour and a half at the end of that rope. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's hellish. It doesn't even bear thinking about. Yeah. And it doesn't seem believable that he could survive the fall. And that was something that I asked him about. He said that, imagine it was like a big feather bed. Basically, I think he talks about it in this next clip where essentially that powder snow broke his fall and then he's in a crevasse. He's in a crevasse with a broken leg. So just a few hundred feet from the bottom of the mountain, Joe, he's fallen into this this black hole, essentially, and he's perched on a narrow ledge and there's just, you know, an abyss just stretching below him. And he really was in trouble at this point. When I regained uh, my senses... I had one eye screw left, which I put into the wall of the crevasse and tied myself to. And then I looked around with my head torch. I was now 75 feet inside this crevasse. And the rope was going up to the ceiling of the crevasse. And I thought, well, Simon's flown off the top of the cliff, so he's dead. So if I pull on this rope, it'll come tight on his body. And using that as an anchor, I can climb up the rope with special slings, prosit loops and stuff like that. And of course, when I pull the rope down, it came slashing down and it was exploded and it was frayed. And it meant that Simon had remembered at the last minute that the one knife we had, which happened to be mine, was in the top pocket of his rucksack. And he'd got it out at the last minute and cut the rope, which was good news, really, because he was still in the game. It meant he was still in, alive. You know, I, I, I felt no anger towards him for cutting the rope. It, mm. it seemed to be a pretty sensible thing to do. It's a unique historical event in mountaineering history, I believe. Well, it, it is because it usually never happens. You normally... When things go wrong climbing, they go wrong fast and quickly. And you simply don't have time to get a knife out and cut a rope. And ropes are pretty strong. You can't just whack it with an ice axe and hope it's going to cut. So in, in a sudden fall, you know, if you, if you had no anchor and you were trying to cut the rope before your friend came onto your rope, you just wouldn't have a chance of doing it. But because this was, you know, Simon was stabilized to some extent, he just had to get the knife out one-handed and cut the rope. Now, it was a no-brainer for him because he didn't know whether I was one foot off the ground or 20 feet off the ground. He just knew he was two rope lengths, 300 feet off the deck. No, I am not a mountaineer. Never would I. I don't think I'll ever be a mountaineer. I don't quite believe him there, though. When you mm. pull on that rope and you get it and see that it's frayed and see that it's been cut, part no, of you must be... I don't know. I'm with Joe on this one. He didn't know. Simon didn't know Joe's position, did he? Joe could have been a thousand feet off the ground. He could have been five feet off the ground. I, I think in that so situation, not human nature? you can go through that logically, and I think you can think yourself into that. But I do agree with Chris in that your first instinct, your very first instinct, has to be that this person let me go. 
right? Sure, but I defy anyone to yeah. sit in that well, snow hollow no, no, no. and Nobody's... not cut the rope. Right. You, absolutely. Had, you get handed a knife, you're cutting that rope, and everyone sat here. No one. Absolutely. Because you're just mad. You're, it's suicide. Just, yeah, it is. Yeah, no one is pointing the finger here at Simon Yates, but I'm just saying like it's that, that, that first feeling that you must get has got to be, before you kind of rationalize and go through the logic and understand that. Yeah, especially when you're in a crevasse. And we're going to hear now exactly how Joe has recovered himself because he's in a crevasse, and Simon, of course, is long gone, and Joe has to decide what to do. He passed a terrible night thinking, you know, I may have died, and um, I had a pretty bad night because I thought, oh, God, he's still alive. He's, he's going to be coming down looking for me. And you're in a crevasse, you're, you're in a sound chamber, basically. And I basically spent every five minutes screaming Simon's name, and all you could hear was the inside of the crevasse, and they're, they're quite scary places, crevasses. How do you think you survived falling 200 plus feet, even though there was a level of cushioning? It's still a dramatic height to fall. I fell about 75 feet and I hit 15 feet of powder snow. Uh, if you imagine a, a ski jumper hitting a, you know, making a mess of his jump, they can land on a, a slope of snow and because of the give, the slip, you know, they can get away with quite a lot. And it, basically it was because I went down, when I hit the snow, it was like, plummeting into a huge feather bed that just slowed me down and when it broke through when i fell through again i landed what i if you imagine the inside of the glass spanned by an old roof that had collapsed and jammed across the walls now that did hurt that really really hurt um i was severely winded um i'm not even sure if i didn't dislocate my hip but something went with my hip and then popped back in place and i was in extreme pain because i'd landed on the side that my right side my broken leg side and what could you see at that time inside a crevasse i would imagine obviously darkness pervading but what could you make out what were your surroundings uh, i i could see that if i'd landed three feet to my left or my right i would have just gone down because the crevasse carried on down if you imagine it narrowing to about from about 20 feet wide to 10 feet wide and going down into the depths i couldn't see a bottom down there and above me, if you imagine 70, 75 feet of a, of a sort of a plum shape, if you're at the narrow end of a, a pear shape, um, and the hole where I'd come through the roof. And by about 9.30 in the morning, I knew with absolute certainty that Simon was either dead or he thought I was dead because he would have found me by then. And he would have been up by then because he was as thirsty as I was. I didn't know Simon had actually use half his rope to climb down much further to the right, two or 300 feet to the right, and shouted. He couldn't hear me. He'd seen the cliff and he thought, well, if he's gone over that, he's dead. And I tell you, if you looked in that crevasse, you'd think that you'd just disappear if you went down there. So he just started stumbling down to base camp. And he got down this heavily crevassed glacier without a rope, and, and he got to base camp about midday and told our friend that I was dead. And he was frostbitten he was exhausted he was mentally absolutely shattered i mean he'd done more than anybody could do to try and save my life and at the last minute he'd been effectively forced to kill me and, and the guilt of that is a terrible thing mm. you know the guilt of surviving that so yeah it's uh, it's it's no no clearer incidentally as to how joe's going to get out of this mess what would you have done I wouldn't. I can't even know how to begin to yeah. think about that question. It's it's so impossible 
a dilemma to me that I wouldn't even know where to start. Because he glosses over it a little bit. Uh, uh, you know me. You know where I'm going with this one. The, 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 the psyche of it all. He said at the start of that clip, he's going to come looking for me. Mm. You've then got to get over the fact mm. he ain't coming to look for me. Yeah. He may be dead, as he said there, or equally... He he's he thinks I'm dead, therefore he's gone. So you've got to get over the fact that no one's coming for mm. me here. And I'm I getting that, out of that's it. something that he went through at the time, and he has compartmentalised that, and he's put that in a box. As you'll hear at the end of this interview, mm. he doesn't think about that ever again because there are some things in this that were so harrowing that he simply will not revisit them, even when he's talking to someone like me, <laughs> prodding him and probing him right. for every single revelation. But what he ends up doing, and I've got to be honest, I wouldn't. This wouldn't even occur to me. This wouldn't even occur to me. And even if it did occur to me, I don't think I'd have the bravery to do it. I couldn't climb up. I mean, the walls were overhanging. I, I couldn't climb sideways because this crevasse was called a Bergstrom. It extended the whole width of the base of the mountain, several miles. And if I stayed where I was, I would die slowly of hypothermia and dehydration. And I had a good sleeping bag and I was going to eat a lot of snow. So I reckoned it would take maybe six days, five or six days. And, and you'd be in this twilight world. You'd be absolutely mad by the time you died. So I thought, well, the only thing I haven't explored is going deeper. So I threw my rope down and didn't put a knot in the end and I'd sail off the edge of this ledge. And I didn't put a knot in the end because I thought there's nothing down there with my frozen hands. I won't be able to control the rope. I'll go off the end of the rope and I'll die quickly. But about 70 feet further down, 80 feet further down, the, the crevasse narrowed to a point where it was jammed with snow. And I could crawl along to a place where avalanches had poured in and formed a very, very steep slope. And I managed to climb this slope, which was about 160 feet, by jumping up on both legs onto a broken leg, which was extremely painful. So when he says about the, the snow jamming into the narrow crevasse, the narrow gap there, he talks about crawling a, a distance of about 15 metres to the, 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 the foot of the slope, which was eventually his salvation. He was crawling over unstable snow, snow that had jammed into a wedge in the rock. So it, there was no solid ground underneath it. At any second, the snow could have given way and whoosh, he would have gone straight down. But somehow he managed to crawl across and psychologically it was horrifying. Physically, it was agony. And I did ask, how could you even consider, conceive of getting up on your two legs and hopping up a 180-foot slope? Well, what I actually did was what's called a tibial plateau fracture, which is an extremely serious fracture. And what I was trying to do on it is you'd probably require a general anaesthetic to deal with that. There's one good thing about pain is we don't remember it. Otherwise, we'd all have one-child families. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's indescribable. I mean, writing the book, was it was just nearly impossible trying to describe how painful it was. But there was a pretty good imperative. You know, you can deal with just about anything if you know you're going to die. If you absolutely know you're going to die and you're 25 and you don't want to die, you can put up with quite a lot. He's still got the crawl ahead of him. He gets out of the crevasse. He's still got eight miles between himself over treacherous ground, over a glacier between himself and where they made camp. And he's on the clock because they're going to leave. And when they leave, it's a two-day walk from the nearest road. We were doing pretty extreme levels of mountaineering. And you are used to a pretty hard level of endurance, you know, just normally when things go well. So you are by nature quite stoical most of most mountaineers are and the one thing you don't do is panic and the one thing you don't get is emotional because that's not going to get you anywhere 
when it happened, instead of going, oh, oh woe is me, we, we, you know, we'll have to leave Joe because we, we can't think of any way out of this. We just calmly thought, what can we do? And we thought out of the box. We tried to think of a different way of solving the problem. And now when I was on my own, I was just completely concentrating on what do I do to solve this problem? First problem, how do I get out of this crevasse? Well, eventually I stuck my head out of this crevasse and I saw the sun and I saw the mountains again and I thought, right, okay, got it. Got down to the glacier and I could see Simon's tracks leading away. And I thought, right, I've got to follow his tracks because they will lead me through the crevasses. I started crawling after Simon's tracks. At this point, I started looking at my watch and going, right, I'm going to get to that crevasse over there in 20 minutes. And if I got there in 18 minutes, I was made up. And if I got there in 22 minutes, I was absolutely furious. And that watch gave me structure and it gave me discipline and it gave me targets that I could aim for and not think of the big picture. The big picture was I've got eight miles to crawl over really rough ground. I've got no food, no water. I haven't had food and water for a day and a half. I'm frostbitten and I'm badly injured. Now, if I thought about that too much, I would have just got psychologically totally overwhelmed. But if I could just break it down into 20-minute sort of competitions. Because I then did this. I crawled for another three and a half days. We've all done that. We've used the clock to compete. Just in certain slightly different Uh, scenarios. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Circumstances. But, you know, the main factors motivating Joe at this point, and even then he's probably thinking, yeah, I'm still a goner. But obviously the unthinkable pain he has to push to one side. He knows that Simon and their friend Richard, who was looking after their camp for them while they went off climbing, they're going to leave pretty soon. He's got a couple of days at the most to do it. And he knows that if he just succumbs to that urge just to collapse and just take a breather, take a breather, you know, he might not he might not yeah. get going again. So his ability, his, his resilience in this situation is just remarkable. Initially on the glacier. I could just slide along backwards on my bum, pushing myself along. And that, that was painful, but it, it was manageable. After I got off the glacier the next day, which was um, left me about six and a half miles of broken boulders and rocks and scree, the only thing I could do is hop because you couldn't crawl over these boulders. And you're using a little short ice axe as a sort of walking stick. And you'd fall almost every time you hopped. And you, inevitably, you'd land across your broken leg and the pain of that was just i can't even begin to describe what it was like i mean i remember for the first two or three hours i was just swearing and screaming and shouting and then i suddenly thought there's no one listening to you just shut up get on with it you've got 10 minutes to get to that red rock and i kept doing these 20 minute things for the next three and a half days until at about three o'clock in the morning by which time I was I was hallucinating. I was I was pretty ill. Um, what were the nights played, like, Joe? Uh, I'd get into my sleeping bag and just lie on the ground um, on the rocks. Um, it didn't snow except for the last night, um, so that was fortunate. So my sleeping bag didn't get wet. Um, getting a broken leg because the bones had gone through each other, so I couldn't bend my knee. And trying to get your leg into a sleeping bag was just unbelievable. But but when I eventually got to this place at three in the morning, I didn't really know where I was. Um, if you think when I started the climb, I weighed 10 and three quarter stone and I now weighed about seven. So I was going into something called ketoacidosis. I've been using ketones in my body to break down the proteins in my muscles and my organs. And um, I remember just screaming out and suddenly seeing this red and yellow spaceship about 150 feet away and it was the tents uh, and Simon and Richard were in the tents you know 
I couldn't believe it. I, I, the rock I was sitting on at that point, I fell off. So they couldn't, it was between me and them. So they couldn't see me. And eventually Simon picked me up and uh, dragged me into the tent. The first thing I did was, was thank Simon because he saved my life. I mean, if he hadn't lowered me all the way down the mountain and then dropped me into a crevasse, I'd have died up where I broke my leg. So what he did was the most incredible single-handed mountain rescue that I think has ever been done. If you hadn't dropped me into that crevasse, mate, I'd have been a goner. <laughs> uh, eight and a half days after they set off to climb Sula Grand, Joe summoned up one final effort to drag himself within a shouting distance of base camp. And it's four days, you've got to bear in mind at this point, since he broke his leg. He's been living with a broken leg with no painkillers for four days. He's lost a third of his body weight. And I asked him at this point to describe his emotions at the point of his reunion with Simon. I was just so relieved that all this pain was going to stop and all this doubt and all this dread that you were going to die. Because for all of that time, I, was, I had accepted I, I was doing this for nothing. You know, I mean, I just thought, well, at least somebody might find my body if I get further down the mountain. I, I didn't really think I was going to live. So there was a relief for me, but I was so exhausted. It, was, it wasn't much more than that. But I think for Simon, thanking him was quite an emotional thing because he must have been in agony thinking about how does he go back and tell my parents? You know, I was climbing with your son, I cut the rope on him and, and he's dead. They're not going to be too chuffed about that. So I think for him, you know, it, it was, yeah, it was probably more emotional than anything. Richard, this guy we'd met, who was a trekker, he didn't have a clue what was going on. He'd, he'd never been on a mountaineering trip. We just met him in Lima and, and said, come and join us. So he thought we were all mad. Now, if ever there was a guy that was never going to take up mountaineering, I'm pretty sure it was Richard. Uh, Joe had six operations. He fixed his broken leg. He climbed two years later. Wow. His decision to write Touch in the Void was much sooner than that because Simon had been criticised so harshly from the mountaineering community. And as Joe mentions also at the start of this uh, particular uh, episode of, 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 this, of this show, he wrote the book to set the story straight. And I asked him whether writing the book was cathartic. No, it was awful. It wasn't cathartic at all. And I lived in the attic bedroom of a friend of mine in Sheffield and during the seven-week period when I was writing it. And it was, it was only a year after the accident, so it was still pretty fresh. And um, I'd come down in the morning, make a cup of coffee, and he said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, well, what's wrong? He said, well, you were screaming last night. <laughs> and uh, I said, what, what do you mean I was screaming? He said, oh, you must have been having a nightmare. But I, I didn't remember my dreams for about five or six years. So obviously something was coming out in my head at night when I was asleep. But the actual writing it, trying to go and remember exactly how I felt and what it really was like, and then trying to articulate your emotions, your fears, and, and your experiences. I didn't find it cathartic at all. I found it awful. I, I just thought, yeah, and truth is, I've never read it since. I don't, I don't particularly want to go there. You know, if I give the talk, I'm not going there in, in the way I went in that book because I, as for my own mental health, I don't think it would, it would help. Um, so what I've done is I've essentially just put it in a box. You know, bad things can happen to you. And I don't think revisiting them all the time is necessarily a, a healthy or good thing to do. I, I think put them in a box, learn from it, and just move on. Very interesting. Interesting yeah. advice. Um, and he, uh, he says in, in, in other parts of the interview that it taught him this whole incident that he was a great writer because he is, there's no doubt, he's a great writer and I'd always recommend the book to anyone. He's written eight, I think, um, books on, on various different subjects. In fact, he's got a book, Walking on the Wrong Side of the Grass, which has come out. It's available either in its paperback form or for Kindle on Amazon as well. Touchingthevoid.com is where you can head and we thank him immensely for Absolutely. sparing the time to talk to us. 
Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.